Hello and welcome to Living Hope. This is Pastor Staten, and I want to welcome everybody that is joining us today. A shout out to our E family, all of you that are joining us through the internet. I want to remind you every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, you can join us live at tv.livinghopemd.com. I pray that today's message blesses you and that you enjoy the word as it is shared today. I'm so lost to be found, and I know it's in my mind. Good morning, Living Hope. Amen. Some of you still are not sure if it's morning or if it's good, but it is a good morning, right? I don't know. I, I have had the thought many times over the last few weeks, particularly, what do people who do not know Jesus Christ do on Sunday morning? My wife will tell you, I'm just not that guy that lays in the bed. I, if I sleep till 8 o'clock, I have slept in. I'm talking about like grumpy in, but I just not, just not in me. I, I'm afraid that I'm going to miss something. Anybody? Some of you are early risers. Some of you are like, man, what you talking about? I just, I got the day to, got the day going on. I, I mean, I'm not up at four or five every morning, but I don't want to be wasting my day, but it's good to be in the house of God. Why? Because I know God's got something for us this morning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. How many of you can recite these by, from memory already? Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Lesson 4 in the Beatitudes. The question is, Brother Roberts, how many lessons are we going to get in the Beatitudes? And the answer is, I just don't know. Amen. Uh, I promised myself. I did not promise you. I promised myself I would not be in a hurry. And I do feel at times that, that we press through some things that, that have some value to us. And so if you are uh, not enjoying the Beatitude lessons, I, I'm sorry. I can't help you. You can probably join the teenagers and get something a little shallower. Um, that's, what, that's what teenage ministry is sometimes. But if you want something from the Word that maybe is a little bit deeper and a little more challenging, this probably is the place for you. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 3, and seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, because they're going to inherit the earth. And blessed are them that are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, because they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we're working our way all the way to that place where we will willingly and want, not really maybe want, but willingly suffer persecution for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. We started um, four weeks ago talking about the Beatitudes, and I told you that each one presents us as followers of Jesus with both a challenge and a promise. We talked about how the word blessed in the King James means happy or blessed, but it also expresses the idea of completion. We delved into the scripture and found that the, the ideas of completion and maturity are synonymous ideas in the word of God. We've discussed probably at length that becoming mature is 
hard work and it begins or it is a, a product of having or possessing and maintaining three things, having, possessing, and maintaining a right attitude, which for us in humanity, if we're being honest with ourselves, is one of the most difficult things that we're going to do. Sometimes it's not, it's not hard to have the right attitude, but in other times it's difficult to maintain the right attitude, right? It, it just, it's just what it is. And so in life, when we achieve that level of maturity, we've gained that right perspective, that correct attitude about certain things, it brings blessing into our life, right? So young people are notorious, maybe not so much just young people, but young people are notorious for throwing away money. They seldom understand the need to save any. And the reason is that they're often sheltered by mom and dad and they've not had to experience so many rainy day scenarios. Amen. Right? And, you know, uh, what they say? Hard times, tough times, life is a tough teacher. And sometimes you just got to go through it to realize, hey, I need a, a few pennies held back here because the rain is going to fall on the just and the unjust. Things are going to break, right? How many, how many of you have been immature and you lose your salvation when something breaks down? My car won't start. Oh, my God. It's a car. Hello. They're going to break. Well, it's brand new. Good for that. They tow them just as well as they do the old beat-up junkers. They all tow the same on the back of the truck, right? And, and it's mechanical. It's going to break down. The wash machine will not last forever, right? Sometimes I don't think they last very long at all, but that's just what it is, right? And so the Beatitudes are about gaining the correct perspective. They're about having a right attitude toward God, uh, to and about myself and others. And that's, that's the difficult part. I can have a right attitude about God. I can have a right attitude about me and a stinking attitude about others. Or I can have a right attitude towards God, a right attitude about others, and have a stinking attitude towards me. But Lord, help you if you have a wrong attitude about God because you're not going to get very far like that. But Jesus, in this greatest sermon ever preached, gave us these eight interrelated qualities, these attitudes, and no single character trait we've been talking about stands alone, right? They are progressive. Each one is building upon the next. And so we talked about how they're paradoxical in nature. They, are, they represent, in many ways, an opposite view of the worldview. And that's, that's difficult for us. If we come in here and want everybody to think we're holy and righteous and we got it all together. And you know what? Sometimes our socks don't match. Amen. Right? You know, um, uh, well, years ago, a young lady came to church and she had two shoes on that didn't match. And uh, I tried to help her out. And sometimes you can't help people. Sometimes you shouldn't help people. Sometimes help people get you in trouble. She had two sets of blue shoes. I didn't know that. One with bows and one without. And she stood there in front of me and my wife. And my wife, I thought she was going to slap me. This dear lady said, oh, look, I've got two shoes on. And I thought, oh, man, her bow must have fell off. So I reached down and snatched the bow. I didn't know. Nobody told me she had two pairs of blue shoes. I don't have two pairs of blue shoes. I got one pair of brown, one pair of black. Hello. I don't, I don't have that issue. And so I tried to help her out, but I wasn't helping very much. Why? Because I didn't understand. And so sometimes we can have two different socks on in our perspective. We can have the world's view on something, and it's contrasting with God's view. And we get caught in this place, and somebody walks up, and they want to snatch the bow. 
Hello. Well, all I can say about that is that's how the fight started. And that's how it starts in our life. That's what happens, right? And so we talked about the poor in spirit, those who have a deep sense of, of spiritual destitution. They comprehend their nothingness before God, and people don't understand. Sometimes even as the people of God, we don't truly understand how great our need of God is. But when we learn to walk with him, you can understand that in Jesus, I can absolutely do nothing. Without him, I am destitute, helpless, and a vagabond, right? The poor in spirit, they, they trust that repentance is part of God's gift and not something that is owed to them. Remember that publican who would not so much as lift up his eyes, but he smote his, smote his chest and, and he said, God, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. Just because you don't do the things that you used to do does not mean you're still not a sinner. We are saved by grace, right? We talked about those that blessing upon those that mourn. Blessing is not just for anyone who mourns, but it's, it's certainly our God is a comforter of all who mourns. But this specifically is talking about those that mourn in reference to sin. Why? Because we read from the scripture that godly sorrow worketh repentance that brings salvation, not to be repented of again, but the sorrow of the world brings death. And so this beatitude, this attitude bears a double sorrow, the sorrow for sin, not just our own sin, but also the sin of our world and the effects that it's having upon our world. We understand this. The world around us celebrates sin. It flaunts it. It even dares God to do something about it. But I, I would remind uh, an audacious world what the Bible says, that God once winked at ignorance, but now commands every man everywhere to repent, right? And so God is a hater of all sin. He does not hate the sinner but he does hate the sin, whether it's your sin, my sin, or the worst criminal in the world's sin, right? And so what am I talking about? We need to share his perspective. I can't wear the sock that says God hates sin and the other sock that says, oh, I don't, I don't hate all sin. Those, those are different colors. They don't match. They're, they don't wash out in the same washing machine together, right? And so we've got to get that attitude that God is a holy God and he hates all sin. We went into blessed are the meek, those humble of spirit, and the, the presence of God. We understand this from the Bible, that the presence of God is drawn to the humble, is drawn to the meek, right? But it runs away, it pushes itself away from the proud, right? And so meekness is an attitude of the heart. The meek would, I told you this, and so, so many times we have issue with this. The meek would rather suffer injury than inflict it. I wish I could say that were true of me. It's not always Sometimes I want to give them some of what I think. Hello? Sometimes you just got to, you feel like you just have to unload everything you got on them. That's the same thing as emptying your gun, right? One shot gets the job done, but seven will make sure it's... And that's how we are spiritually. And this is not the spirit of meekness. Remember, right? The meek live, live not out of weakness, but out of humility. Moses was the meekest man on the earth, right? Difficult, right? And yet when he was attacked, hello, this is the, the true attitude of meekness. When Moses was attacked, he didn't fight back. He didn't react, but he allowed the Lord to fight for him. How many times have you read in the Old Testament to hold your peace and let the Lord fight your battles? Amen. Let me translate that to you for you in 2021 vernacular. Shut up. What? Shut up. Hold your peace. 
Shut your mouth. Let God take care of it. The hardest thing you'll ever do in life because my human nature wants to defend me, right? And so meekness, if you read through the scripture, and I didn't go in deep detail about it, is equated to a quiet spirit. We could all learn something from that. Amen? Amen. So those first three are the roots of blessing. The poor in spirit, the, more, the life that mourns over sin, that attitude of meekness that doesn't think so highly of itself. Then we got into blessed are the hungry and the, the thirsty. Why? Not because they don't have enough to eat or to drink, but they're hungry and thirsty, not for their own righteousness, but for the righteousness of God. They're actively searching, actively looking for the righteousness that will meet their, their, the need of their spiritual poverty, the righteousness that will allow them to mourn not only of, over their sin, but over the sin of the world. And so this, this attitude is exemplified by a desire to be in the presence of God. David desired to come in the presence of God. And I told you, it matters how you come. It matters how you come into the presence of God. And so many of these attitudes of our world is casual. I think it was a few years ago, we were down in Virginia Beach doing something. There's a sign, come as you are, wear your bathing suit to church. Some of the elders I know would roll over in their grave. Why? Because, and that's not just about what you wear. Uh, casual is an attitude, right? The very best that you have may be, may be whatever. It's not, it's not, I promise you, it's not because you have a, a $500 suit on or whatever. That's not it. It's, it's the approach. You can come dressed to the t You can come dressed like you came from Beverly Hills and have a rotten attitude. You can still come with a casual approach. It's about how you approach God with sincerity, right? The fifth challenge was mercy. We talked about it last week. The giving and receiving of mercy. Mercy is withholding punishment that sometimes, oftentimes is deserved. But nowhere in life do we imitate God more than we do when we show someone else mercy. And I told you this, mercy is a choice, right? Why? 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 You've got to choose mercy. I, I want to have mercy because I know sooner, probably rather than later, I'm going to need some mercy. But mercy is the the ultimate sign of maturity, showing that compassion, that, that kindness to someone when you have the power, even the right to punish or harm them. We looked at two specific things about mercy. First, mercy is an attitude that involves itself. Not nosy, not don't know, but it, it, gets in, it gets itself into the misery and the pain and the suffering of a neighbor, not so you know all of the things that are going on, but that you can help. It, it becomes active. It doesn't just feel for them. The story of the Good Samaritan, mercy does not pass by on the other side, but mercy stops and mercy involves itself and mercy invests. Took him to the end and said, whatever, here's the money and whatever else, when I come back, I'm going to pay it again, right? Then we looked at mercy being obtainable. When we get God's mercy, what we, we can just go and get it, obtain, right? And that, that really Christ-like attitude is where we are so mature that our mercy, like God's mercy, is obtainable. It's available when someone needs it. All they have to do is come and get it. We don't make them earn it. We don't make them work for it. And that brought us to the sixth attitude, which was the purity of heart. That single focus, a love that's not divided cannot love the things of God and the things of the world. It's just, it's just really impossible. But purity of heart meant that I'm checking my own heart, challenging my own attitude, questioning my own motive. Does what I want or what I think or how I feel line up with what Jesus wants or Jesus thinks or Jesus feels? 
Does my perspective, does my attitude line up with the Word of God? And so purity, we talked about, was an attitude that consists of three things. Sincerity, right? The lack, the lack of, uh, I'm sorry, sincerity and honesty and the lack of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy and deceit are offensive to the pure in heart. I told you last week, there's a little bit of hypocrite in all of us. Amen. 30% of you said amen. But a lot of people talk that talk, but there very few really walk the walk, right? Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can get into that holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. And so I, I, I am specifically using my time to recap because I want you to see how these build one upon another. Those first three are really about my, my, about how I approach God. Those next ones are talking, that we'll, we'll get into some more of that in a little bit. They, they're, they're talking about how, how my attitude is towards God and towards other and even to myself. But the fourth part, that we're, or the part four of this lesson uh, of the beatitude, I, I began to just kind of step back and look, and I said, you know what, each beatitude is like a nail that's being driven in a coffin. And inside that coffin is a corpse, a dead person, uh, a, a false understanding of salvation. That these, these beatitudes are, they're, 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 they're sealing off from us this false understanding that a person can be saved without being changed. I, I know that we understand that. Well, I'm just this way and I'm just that way. And I, but we've got to really grasp that you cannot be saved without change. It, it's impossible. Well, God loves me just the way you are. Yes, he does. But he's not willing for you to stay just the way you are, right? He wants you to change. And so the second part of that is that, the, that, that false understanding, that, that thing that's being sealed in the coffin is the belief that a person can inherit eternal life even if their attitudes or their actions are unlike the attitudes and actions of, or, of Jesus Christ. And he's, you know, this, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And so each one of these is, is just a little bit more of a radical departure from a world where an eye for an eye was a really deeply held belief. And so that brings us to the seventh beatitude. And I probably won't even get through this one today. We're going to talk about the, the, the seventh one. Blessed are they, blessed are the peacemakers. How many of you would say I'm a peacemaker? Try to be. It's the, it's the challenge. And I'm going to probably share with you some things about peacemaking. And you're going to be like, wait a minute. Not my concept of peacemaking. But blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because mature people prefer peace over chaos. Right? I'm going to get you to agree with that. And then I'm going to step on that hand while you've got it up in the air. Let me... Let me talk to you about some misconceptions of a peacemaker. First, let's, this, this misconception is that peacemaking is not the absence of conflict. The world defines peace as the freedom from disturbance or the cessation of war, the ceasing of violence, and all of that is really important. But, but, but the peace that exists in the earth is fleeting and momentary, and more often than not, it's temporary. And yet, for every one of us, we're living in a world that seemingly has been flipped upside down in the last year and a half, two years, whatever. It's been everything, right? I, I remember, you know, 
couple of years ago, things were so different than they seem to be today. And so we, we, we want peace. We just want things to go back to the way they are or the way they were. Let me, let me give you a newsflash. They're never going to go back to the way they were. Things change. The world is changing around us, and, and it may not be changing in the direction that we think it should be, right? And so all of that's really important. The, the second misconception of a peacemaker is that peace in the Bible cannot, can never be confused with pacifism. Well, what are you talking about? Pacifism is the belief that any violence, including war, under any circumstance, on all disputes, should be settled by peaceful means. Some of y'all go, some of y'all go, looks like a bunch of bobbleheads. Why? Because, because we've been taught different things. I, I know as a young man, I was taught how to treat a bully. You don't give him your lunch money. You give him something else. You were taught that way, right? I'm going to tell you it's the wrong way. Some of you were taught, give him your lunch money. Make peace, make peace. And I'm going to tell you, you were taught wrong as well. It's difficult. But how do I have the right attitude in my world? How do I have the right perspective in my world? How do I understand that right? Why? Because my, my, my third point about the misconception of peacemaking is this. Peacemaking does not mean that we avoid all strife. We're never instructed to run from conflict. Hello? Putting your head in the sand and hoping that the conflict will end, it's only going to delay the inevitable. There's still going to be a conflict. But my point is this, how we fight is a completely different discussion. Anybody ever read that scripture? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The bishop, before the bishop, Elder Staten told me, he said, I knew a guy in Indianapolis. He told me that he was an old timer, right? Grew up in the turn of the century. He was born in the early 1900s. He said, I knew a guy in Indianapolis, and he said, I built my church with these two hands. You know what the old-time preachers did? You didn't line up with the word, he took him out back and beat the snot out of him. He, who, okay, who's challenging pastor today? Taking numbers. Anybody seen the guns on that guy? That's not, that's not what Jesus meant, right? But how do we fight? We learn, right? Listen, my, my mom told me a, a, a woman doesn't fight with her hands. She didn't live up to her own verbiage there. But a woman fights with her mouth, right? And, and, and men want to fight with their fists. Not always true, right? Women fight with their hands and their mouth. Men fight with their hands. But we fight verbally. We express our opinion. We're telling somebody what we think or how we feel, right? So listen, as the church... We've got to learn that, that peacemaking is not the avoidance of conflict. It's not avoiding conflict. It's not sticking your head in the sand. But we've got to learn how to fight like Jesus fought. Amen. Right? Jesus didn't stick his head in the sand. Jesus went and separated himself from the conflict. Go read the New Testament. Many times over and over again, he separated himself from the conflict and he found a place to pray. If we really believe that prayer changes things, we can put these guns away and we can put these guns in use. 
Does that make sense? That's real peacemaking. That's the kind of peace that's not going to necessarily bring peace to the world, but peace to your situation. My fourth point, my fourth uh, misconception about peacemaking is this, and this kind of flows into that, right? Peacemakers are not appeasers. They're not the, they don't bring appeasement to every party. What do you mean by that? I mean that they don't have peace at any price. The idea that peace at any price, that mentality is far from biblical. And I've discovered this. I've discovered at least this much, that you can never make everyone happy all the time. But the really, truly dominant spirit in our world right now is a spirit of accommodation. Ah, you know, accommodate me, accommodate me, right? Or we want people to give us something because we don't like what's going on. That's called accommodation. I'm going to, right, and that really, so, you know, you can put your own label on it, right? If people don't agree with you, then you're going to label them as, be honest. I'm not challenging the world. I'm challenging us as the people of God. When someone doesn't agree with my view and my perspective, then I'm going to put a label on them. Oh, they're worldly. They're a bigot. They're a racist. They're a... You hear? That's what's going on in our world right now. And if we're not careful, that accommodating spirit slides its way into the church. Now listen, I've got tons. My wife can show you. I've got books stacked up this high on the Sermon of the Mount. And I am really trying to, to teach what I feel in the Holy Ghost. I'm not trying to upset you. I'm talking about blessed are the peacemakers. And peacemakers do not want to avoid conflict. They don't go looking for it. They don't fight like the world fights. They don't bring a knife to a gunfight or a gun to a knife fight. That's not, that's not how they fight. They attack things on a spiritual basis. The church is not a physical church as much as it is a spiritual church. And so we're only, listen, we're not going to solve the world's problems by talking about them. I know politicians are like, let's all get together, right? You cry war for 10 years and now we want peace. And you're going to cry peace for 10 years and now that's the, that's the world does that, right? They're always calling for, they're calling for peace. But 10 minutes ago, they were fighting a war. It can't be that way. I'm, I got some things here I want to share with you from the Word of God about being a peacemaker that is difficult for us to understand from every perspective. Because we label people who don't agree with us, whether in our mind or out loud, we label them as whatever we want to put that label on and put that spin on it. But listen, we don't listen as peacemakers, we're not accommodators. We're not making room for every opinion to come into the house of God. Does that make sense? Listen, the only opinion that can, that can be allowed in the kingdom of God is this opinion. Now, listen, that's not true of your life or my life. That's not true of your mind or my mind or your heart or my heart. Because why? Because our hearts are being bombarded by... Anybody feel that besides me? That constantly I'm getting this bombarding. I, I literally have learned to drive in my truck with the radio off because I like the peace. Because everything that I hear is bombarding me, whether you like CNN or Fox, whether you, listen, I don't care, it makes no difference to me. They're all putting their spin on it. And if we're, not, if we're not careful, that spirit of accommodation comes into the church and it begins to flow into our makeup as the people of God. 
And so peacemakers are not accommodators. Doesn't mean they don't make concessions at times, right? But this is a dominant spirit in our world that cries out, we're being treated unfairly, right? And I, I will tell you, yes, absolutely, we all are, you know, that's that victim mentality that pastor talks about all the time, right? We've all been done wrong. We are all victims, but not of the tragedies that are being promoted throughout our world. We are all victims of the effects of sin. That's where I'm victimized. That's where you're victimized. And so the point I'm trying to make is that the person who is a peacemaker doesn't gloss over the problem. They're not acting as if everything's all right. That's not a peacemaker. And so what is a peacemaker, Brother Roberts? You spent some time talking about this. What is it? So let me give you a working definition of a peacemaker. A peacemaker is someone who is actively seeking to reconcile people to God and to one another. A peacemaker is someone who's actively seeking to reconcile people to God and to one another. Now, for all you English majors, the word peacemaker is a compound word comprised of two very common words. Really difficult to understand this. Peace and maker. Ooh, deep stuff, right? But the first, the first word, the first part of that compound word, the, the, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And shalom was used as a, greed, as a word of greeting or a departing word. And so in much the same way that we say hello or goodbye, it's a broad term, but it, it was related to health and to prosperity and to harmony and wholeness. And so shalom has this multiplicity of meanings. I, as I began to read about this, I thought, this is really cool. So if you tell someone, you told someone shalom, and I'm not Jewish, so I don't use that term, or, or you said to them peace, it means, well, I want you to have perfect welfare. I want you to have serenity. I want you to have fulfillment. I want you to have freedom from trouble. That's God. I just, sorry, right? I, I want you to be liberated from anything which is hindering your contentment. That's pretty deep, right? And so what are you saying? I'm saying that when a Jewish person said shalom, they're wishing you the full presence of God. They're wishing complete peace and prosperity that comes only from the blessing of God on your life. That's pretty cool stuff. So Jesus said peace, right? And so this is, you find this, we, we know this, right? And here's what Aaron said in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 and 25. He said, the Lord bless you. And protect you. The King James says, the Lord bless thee and keep thee, right? And the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. And the Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. That's the first half of that word, right? Peace. And so it's important that we understand, that we remember that peace in the Bible. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. That peace in the Bible is always based on justice and righteousness. I want to mess with some of your theology. See, here's my point. Where, where justice prevails and righteousness rules, you're going to have peace. But without those two virtues of justice and righteousness, there won't be peace. And so you've got to have those two virtues in order to really have a lasting peace. The problem is... In humanity, in society, we have justice or we have righteousness. But very seldom do we ever get justice and righteousness. See, that's a God thing. 
right? I got right on my side, good, but you're not getting, you're not getting justice. I want justice, but you're not on the complete right. And so there's that skewed, does that make sense? There's that skewed area there where we get justice or righteousness, but we don't seem to get both. And so the reality is that real peace only happens when there's justice and righteousness. What do you mean? Uh, let me put it in terms that you can understand. In your salvation, when you came to God, you didn't get justice. You deserved, hello? You deserved punishment. One, one writer said, you deserve to be taken out and hung by the neck until dead. Amen. You deserve the electric chair or the needle or whatever form of corporal punishment you thought was necessary, right? That's what you deserve. So you don't have justice on your side. Only by the mercy of God do we get justice. And we didn't have righteousness on our side. What the ways, the, the, the ways of a man are right in his own eyes. That's righteous. We, we all thought we were right in what we were doing or how we were feeling. Does this make sense to you? I know this is deep. I'm not digging. I'm not, I'm not on the top today. I'm, I got the backhoe out. I'm trying to get down deep here and talk to us. I'm talking about peacemaking. And real peace comes when you get justice and righteousness. That's why the peace of God passes all understanding. Because we get his justice and his righteousness. In the world, you're not going to have peace. Brother Roberts, no, no, no. I, I, get in the book. In the world, you're not going to have peace. Right? But do not fear. Why? Because I have overcome the world. I can live in a world that is full of discontent, full of unrighteousness and injustice. I can live there with the peace of God in my heart because my, my, my peace is not based upon what's happening in my world. Amen. Go back and read about the early church. They had a lot of peace in their world. Fed the lions, human candles, sawn in half in logs, and any other thing they could think up and imagine but they had the peace of God in their hearts. Amen. Terrifies me to think, we were talking about it the other night, that my grandchildren have got to live, got to grow up in a world that is so devoid of peace. But the truth is we grew up in a world that was devoid of peace. We just weren't as aware as maybe we are today, right? Because our world is crying out so much. But the second half of that word is to make, peacemaker, right? This is a really difficult word. It comes from a Greek word that means to do or to make. Again, I told you this is pretty, pretty deep stuff, right? But it's a word that is literally bursting with energy. It, it mandates action and initiative. And so literally, what, what it's talking about, when if I'm a peacemaker, Maker, I, I literally, it, it's talking about dragging the two combatants to a table and give them a reason to put down their arms. Now, let me help you out here. Notice what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say, blessed are the peace wishers. Jesus didn't say, oh, blessed are the peace hopers. Jesus didn't even say, blessed are the peace lovers, the peace talkers, or even, dear God, the peace dreamers. He didn't say any of that. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Why is that? Because peace must be made. <laughs> you know this, but I want to remind you of this. Peace never happens by chance. That's right. 
It just doesn't happen. Somebody has to make it happen. And so the, the truth is, a real, true peacemaker is never passive. They always take the initiative. They're always up and doing, right? And so Jesus is the model peacemaker because what? Peacemaking is divine work. Here's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. See, God is the author of peace. That's what makes Jesus the supreme peacemaker. He came for the purpose of establishing peace. And so his message, listen to me, his message explained peace, his death purchased peace, and his resurrection enables peace. We're the beneficiaries of that. His message, the gospel message, is the message of peace. We have peace, and we're going to talk about this some more in a minute. We have peace through the cross, but we also have peace through the Spirit of God, which was, a, was part of his resurrection. And so when these two words are taken together, peace and maker, it describes one who's actively pursuing peace. Now, I've wrestled with this in my spirit. There is a huge difference between people who talk about peace and people who make peace. A lot of people are talking about peace. They just want to jabber, 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 jabber. A lot of people are hoping peace. A lot of people are dreaming about peace. A lot of people are wishing there would just be some peace, right? But there is a big difference for people who have this idea of being a peacemaker. And Jesus said, this is a place where my people become mature when they are not just peace wishers or hopers or talkers or dreamers, but they're peacemakers. They're taking the initiative to bring about peace in their world. Now, I want to remind you, peacemakers, what they, 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 they is not someone who avoids that conflict. They don't avoid that strife. In fact, I, I said this early on, sometimes peacemaking creates strife. I, I've gotten in the middle of some disputes and tried to make peace, and ended up with both parties mad at me. Hello? And uh, I, I ended up, you know, uh, making more of a mess. Hello? It, it's, listen, can I tell you this, that peacemaking is not pretty work. It, it's, not, it's not for the faint of heart, right? William Barclay translated this verse like this. He said, they are people who produce right relationships in every sphere of life. People who produce right relationships in every sphere of life. And I thought, my, what, what, a, what a tremendous definition. Why? Because if I began to look at every sphere, I've got peace in this relationship and peace in that relationship and peace in this. But there's always that one or two or for some of you a dozen, two dozen, right? Those relationships that don't have peace. And that's, that's the difficult part, right? But the true peacemaker is the one who is producing, not having, not getting, not finding, but they're producing a right relationship in every sphere of life. And so we understand that in our world, we're living in this world that is filled with tragedy. There's constant news of violence and conflict, conflict everywhere, right? But listen, there's plenty of conflict in our world. And so it's a world that the, that the Bible prophesied of that people would cry for peace, but there was none. And this is the specific world that Jesus came to redeem. The prophet Isaiah proclaimed that Jesus would be the prince 
of peace, right? And, and so all throughout the Gospels, we find when Jesus did some great work or healed somebody or forgave their sin, what did he say to them? He said to them, go in peace. And so he was a purveyor of, pre, of peace, right? And some, some commentators consider John chapter 14, verse 27 to be the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. They've got it up there. You know it from the King James. But Jesus said it this way, I am leaving you with a gift of peace, peace of mind and heart, and the peace that I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Amen. What are you saying, Brother Roberts? I'm saying that we shouldn't be upset by what's going on in our world. If we are, there's a problem with our peacemaking ability, right? And so when the Lord, when he, after his resurrection, he appears in the room with the disciples in Luke chapter 24, verse 36, and he says to them, shalom. That word is there, is the Hebrew word shalom used in the Greek. But Jesus literally said unto them, peace be unto you. And so the life of Jesus, his mission was saturated with the idea of bringing the peace of God into the relationships of humanity. Here's my point. He paid an enormous price for you and I to experience peace. It, it really is, right? And so it's really difficult for us to understand the price that he paid for our peace. And so if Jesus paid the price for us to have peace, then what's wrong with our attitude, our perspective, our lack of maturity when we're not having peace? I told you this was challenging. This is difficult. I said, wait a minute, God. I'm just upset about what's going on in my world. And I felt the Lord say to me, yeah, and so you're not really a peacemaker. You're a peace hoper, a peace wisher, a peace dreamer, a peace... Okay, oh, now, now, Lord, don't be mean to me. You're picking on me. And the truth is, so many of us are upset by what's going on in our world because there's this constant churn and we have no peace, but Jesus paid a great price for our peace. It, we see it in the scripture in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. It pleased the Father that all the foolish should dwell, right? And having made peace through the blood of his cross, right? Now, for all you pacifiers, peace didn't come through pacification. Peace came through blood, right? By him to reconcile all things, right, unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in the earth or things in heaven. The New Living Translation says God reconciled everything. That, whole, that term all things means everything. He made peace with everything. Now, I, I know I'm challenging some of you. Some of you have already checked out on me. Some of you are already wondering what's on the menu at McDonald's, but you already know what's on the dollar menu, so come back. Doesn't matter what it is, it's all a dollar. What are you saying? I'm saying something broken. Something broken in us. If he shed his blood so that we can have peace, if we're not having peace in this time. It's a wrong perspective. It's an incorrect attitude, right? If your, chi if your child has a bad attitude, right? You go sit in time out and you stay there until your attitude changes. 
right? None of y'all ever did that. My parents tried to beat the right attitude into me. Some of you did that, and you found out like your parents, it didn't work very well. But that truth is, it's such a difficult thing that he said, I'm going to bring peace into everything. What are you talking about? Jesus said, I'm going to make my relationship right with everything. But it doesn't feel like his relationship's right with everything. Well, certainly his relationship is not right with the world because they're not peacemakers. They're peace talkers, peace wishers, peace dreamers, peace hopers, but they're not peacemakers. Why? They're not actively engaged in making peace. Jesus, right, took all of the enmity that was consistent in your life and in my life and was against us. Those ordinances of the handwriting was against us, and he abolished them with the peace of the cross. Listen, we don't need another peace accord. We don't need another peace discussion. We need the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm saying. The world needs what we have. But if we have got what they've got, they can't get what we're supposed to have. What? If you're all wound up about everything going on in the world and have no peace, then you can't give peace. But when Jesus walked into a situation, he said, peace. Whether it was the storm or the tragedy or the noise, Jesus brought peace into the situation. What are you saying? I'm talking about you are filled with the Holy Ghost. If you've got the right attitude, you can walk into a situation that is filled with chaos and you can bring peace. You're nothing special, but you have that power of God. Why? Because His message proclaimed peace. His cross purchased peace. But that Spirit of God that lives in you, that's an enabler. Not an accommodator, not a pacifier, but an enabler. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. Get back to my notes just a little bit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. This is what sets the church apart from the world. For Christ himself, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, brought peace to us. He united the Jews and the Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with his commandments and regulations. He made peace between, notice this, the Jews and the Gentiles by creating in himself One new people from two groups. What are you talking about, Jesus? Here's what he said, verse 16. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups. Two racially diverse people. Two ethically diverse people. Two socially diverse people. So, two two economically diverse people. Jesus made peace. He brought them two together. And he brought both groups to God by the means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought his good news of peace to the Gentiles who were far away from him and the peace of the Jews who were near to him. Now, all of us, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Look it up. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. What are you saying? I'm saying division can't come into the house of God. We've got to have a perspective that we're peacemakers. Why? Because I know we've got some great things going on in this church. But if we let the attitude and the perspective and the persona of the world come into the church, people can't find the reconciliation that they need. That's right. Amen. 
What did he say to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? He's given to us the ministry and the word of reconciliation. Our job is to be reconcilers. If we're constantly caught up in the churn and the message and the noise and the chaos of the world, we're not going to bring peace. And so the mission of Jesus Christ was to bring peace on earth. Well, guess what the mission of the church is? Oh, shalom. You're not Jewish. Shalom. You're not Jewish. It's not working for you. But what you have is you have the presence of God. And you can walk in with all of these steps. You can be poor in spirit. You can mourn, right, over the sin of people. You can have the right perspective, right? You can be meek and humble. It's not about you. And you can come in with a hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can get to that place where you've got a pure heart, right, where all of these things are lining up in your life. You can bring all of that in where you've got the mercy of God that's personified in your life. And you walk into a place where somebody's life is filled with chaos and disorder. Jesus loves you. But what I am saying is if we let that same spirit of the world come, that's what pastor's talking about. That's what Brother Roberts is talking about. If we let it come into, because we were separate people. Anybody in here is by by nationality a Jew? I'm not. I was a Gentile. I had no right or no privilege with God. Nothing at all. But by the blood right? This is what I'm talking about. This is why I said, Lord, I'm not going to try to get on the second one. I want to talk about peacemaking. Why? Because I want to be a peacemaker. I'm I'm not going to talk about peace. I'm not going to dream about peace. I'm not going to wish for peace. I'm not going to hope for peace. I'm going to take some initiative and I'm going to find somebody whose life's in chaos. And I'm going to say, you know what? Jesus Christ loves you. And he went to Calvary for you. That's the message of the church. The message of the church is not about racial or ethnic issues or social issues or economy. That's not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is that Jesus Christ can bring peace into any situation. What does that mean? Does that mean the next time somebody in power makes some policy decision that I don't like, that I should like it? No, it doesn't mean that at all. You're not accommodating to it, but how do we fight that fight? We got an altar. How do we, how are we going to win the war? Listen, you can't defeat big politics. You can't defeat big government. You can't defeat any of that stuff. I can't do anything about it. You're going to pay your taxes just like I am, but I'm going to love God. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to be a peacemaker. Everybody that I come in contact with, I want to tell them. But if we're not careful, that spirit of accommodation comes in and says, oh, they don't, they don't want what we have. I'm so thankful that somebody didn't think that way about me 30-some years ago. Ah, he's, he's too far gone. I, I've told you that my own family said that of me at the ripe age, Brother Tyler, of 18. They said, we figured by now you'd either be dead or in jail. What? What, what kind of... That, that was their perspective. That was their persona of me. And many of them, all of these decades later, they're still kind of like, they're kind of treating me with this kind of... They're waiting on me to go back to hell raising and all that stuff. 
They don't understand. They don't understand. I have found the greatest peace ability in this world. It's not found in a bottle or a club or a relationship. It's found in the mercy of Jesus Christ. It's found in the blood. We got to recognize who we are. We're not just anybody. We are the peacemakers. He said, blessed are mature, complete, the peacemakers. Listen, I'm telling you, we got to have a different perspective. Some of you are so upset about everything going on, you need to put all that aside and say, you know what, I'm looking. You know who the greatest peacemaker I know is? Jerry Staten. Look, think about him. Think about our bishop. What does he do? He meets people and he introduces them to Jesus Christ. He is a peacemaker. He's taking the initiative. What's wrong? We get so wound up in all that's going on in our world, and it's important. I know it is. But the truth is, if we'd be more like our bishop, we'd have a lot more peace. We'd have a lot more peace. The gravity, the problem, the supreme example, Jesus was a peacemaker. His mission. I got some more, but I'll use it next week. Sister Staten was supposed to teach this week. She allowed me to have this opportunity to work on this a little bit more. I want to be a peacemaker. I I do. But the the challenge is this, is that unless those other, those, those first six stepping stones are not really lined up in my life, then I'm always going to have some place in my life that's not got the peace of God that it should have. What are you talking about? I'm talking about if you're not having peace, then you can't start with peace. You've got to go back to, is my spirit right? Do I have a poor spirit? Am I really mournful over all sin? Or am I okay with some sin and not others? Do I really, am I really a meek and humble person? Or is there some pride coming in? Somewhere, a heritage or something from my past or something, right? Am I, do I really have a hunger and thirst for his righteousness or am I looking, right? Does this make sense to you? Is there really a quality of mercy in my life that is available to others or do I tend to be critical and arrogant and proud and overbearing and tearing down and cutting down? I'm like, Lord, I'm tired of teaching this. Let's move on to something else. This is ripping me apart. Do I really have a pure heart? Do I have a single focus in my life? If those things are lined up, then I can be a peacemaker. But I want to transition from thinking about peace and hoping for peace and wishing for peace into a peacemaker. Bow your head with me. Father, we love you. Thank you. God, I thank you for the challenge of your word. Lord, if no one else has received anything from this, I know that you have challenged me to the depth of my soul. I pray for us as the people of God. Let us be that light to our world. Help us, Father, to be the people of God that you want us to be. Help us, Lord, to look back at these progressive steps, these attitudes, these perspectives, Lord, and make the corrections in our lives, God, to become more like you in every every area of life. Help us, Lord, to be aware that there are people that are living in a chaotic world that is filled with, with unrest, God. And help us, Lord, to walk into situations full of the Holy Ghost, Lord, 
Lord, and to be able to be peacemakers, God, in our world, in our society. I'm praying for living hope, God. I'm praying that in this time, God, in in the middle of this chaotic time, that we would be the peacemakers in our city, in our county, in our neighborhoods, Lord, on our jobs, in our homes, Lord, in our lives. In the name of Jesus, God, help us to be peacemakers, Lord. In the name above every name, we call upon the name of Jesus. Somebody say in Jesus' name. I think we should give him a big hand clap of praise. God is good, isn't he? He is a good God. Sometimes it is easy to start on your destination without knowing the exact path that it takes to get there. To get to our destination, we need to follow the one who knows our predestined path. Be sure to subscribe and watch us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Also, visit us at www.livinghopemd.com. So I'm going to wait on you, Jesus. I'm going to wait on you, Jesus.